We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It is about 7.40pm on Wednesday, 18th of July, 2018, and we're up to episode 156. So welcome, dear listener. I, of course, am your host, Trevor the Iron Fist. With me is Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. Also with me is Paul the Twelfth Man. G'day, Trevor, Scott, everybody else who's listening. (laughs) And dear listener, a special guest for you. We've got Robin Bristow from Reason in Queensland. Robin, I'm tempted. Everyone here has a little nickname, and I'm thinking Robin the Boy Wonder. How how does that suit? (laughs) It's always good to have a nickname. I'm happy with that. Okay. From now on, you're the boy wonder. So, so Robin, welcome aboard, and we're going to talk to you about the Reason Party and various other topics that we normally talk about. Dear listener, if this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, this is an Australian podcast which looks at news, politics, culture, ethics, and the transformations taking place in our society. We might well be cataloguing the demise of civilization, but we try to have fun while doing so. And we are particularly obsessed with the role of religion in our society. And in my opinion, religions are dangerous and they are influential, far more so than people realise. So one of our main aims is to keep tabs on what they are up to. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, sit back and relax while we review the news of the last seven days. And Robin, Reason Party, Queensland, what have you been doing and what are you going to be doing? Tell us, tell us what you're up to. Well, uh, the Reason Party, as you know, is a, a offshoot of the Australian Sex Party. And we haven't been running long as a party in Queensland. And in fact, you know, we're still in the process of trying to register the party in the state and also uh, formulating our policies. So I was very interested to hear you talking about previously uh, branch stacking the Labour Party to try and get in into uh, into power through through that method, and uh, I was actually very interested in that, and, and I would actually encourage you to try and branch stack the Reason Party. I think uh, we're a young. <laughs> That's good. We're a young party. Uh, we, we're still, as I said, trying to formulate our policies. So we'd like to see you know the party full of secular secularists and humanists and rationalists. And uh, what what better to have them branch that the Reason Party? So we would welcome any any uh, activity along that line. I'll, I'll I'll get onto that a bit later on. Um, so in terms of policies, though, like there'd be national policies, wouldn't there, that just apply across the board? Is that right? Well, we have national and state policies. You know, a mm. lot of our, our when I ran for Senate a few years ago for their sex party, a lot of the policies we looked at were essentially state policy. So mm. voluntary assisted dying, uh, legalising abortion, drug law reform, all, all those fall under state policy, essentially. 
yeah, those are perhaps our, our main um, policies that we're looking at. Where, where would Reason Party fall in terms of economic theory? Are they neoliberals or are they communists? You know, if you've got neoliberals <laughs> as a 10 and a communist as a 1, where, where would you fit in? I, I, I would say, you know, we look at all poli- at all policies and if, if they stack up and make sense, then, then we'd, we'd, we'd give them a chance. But uh, if you ask me where I... Where I personally stand, I'm probably quite far to the left. Um, but uh, you know, I, I listen carefully to everyone's arguments, and and I accept if there's good points about them, I, I'm happy to change my opinion I'll, on that. I'll, I'll I'll ask you two questions, and then I'll sure. I think I'll be able to put you on the scale somewhere. So, the um, the personal income tax reductions for high income earners that the government yes. just passed. Do you reckon that was a good idea or a bad one? Well, you, you really don't know. Like, I mean, that's well, fair enough if you haven't really looked at it that closely. So, uh, uh, it, you know, if you're talking about tax breaks for the big companies, then I think that we, we uh, that that needs to seriously be looked at, and and doesn't strike me as a as a good uh, move by the government. Uh, and also, high income earners. I mean, uh, the, the same goes for them. It, it's really the low income and middle income earners that should. Be benefiting from tax breaks. I think I'm putting you down at a three and a half or a four <laughs> on my scale. Well, this is the thing. There's a lot of micro parties around, isn't there? Like the secular party, you know, the Reason. Um, I don't know, Future Party, Science Party. All these guys, very similar in a way. And it's it's not always clear where they sit on the economic sort of scale. So that's always just interesting to know. So. And and you ran in the state election. Um, how did that go? Robin? I did. I ran in the, the seat of Noosa. Um, the incumbent was a LNP candidate, and he was defeated by, I think, the largest swing in the state by a, um independent candidate, Sandy Bolton. Right. And it was, it was heaps of fun. I, I always enjoy campaigning. A little funny story. I was um, chatting to this woman at the... Uh, at the election at the booths, and I was uh, we got into quite a robust discussion about the LNP. She was an LNP supporter, <laughs> and afterwards I said to her, "Well, I hope we never see the LNP candidate again." And she got very angry and said, "Well, she had to because he was her husband." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Man. That was extremely funny. Yes. Well, I should have asked, Robin, your background. So I'm detecting a South African accent. So Yes, you are indeed. I've been in Australia for 11 years now. Right. Uh, yeah. Can I say that a South African falling on the scale at three and a half to four was probably unusual? <laughs> you, you, you would have to admit. Uh, not really. You know, the South, Afri- South Africa has been run by the Communist Party for the last uh, 15 years, so right. in, in conjunction with the ANC. So there are many comrades from, from <laughs> South Africa that you might not be aware of. Okay. It was just, just my, my stereotype impression of, of South Africans. Yes. And, and can you say what you do? Normally, uh, as a job, that to allow you time to um, to sort of campaign and things, because this is the tough part about a campaign is finding sure. the time if you've got to make a living, isn't it? Well, I, I am a qualified architect in South Africa, and in Australia, I'm a registered building designer, so I do dabble in that as well. Right, and is that sort of working for yourself, sort of thing? Is it? 
Yes. Well, I work for I work for mainly for builders, and so I don't have many uh, private clients. Yeah. It's probably less stressful. Okay, but you can be flexible, and you can sort of do stuff at night time, and head out in the afternoon to do yes. something, or whatever. So absolutely. Okay, great. So, Robin, before we get onto the discussion of the Bill of Rights, I saw on your Facebook page you've got a, you've started a petition. I haven't started that petition. That was started by a local Noosa person who's, who who was a member of Dying with Dignity. Right. And uh, she she started that petition herself. I'm just uh, advertising that. Oh, okay. So I got that. And there's a link on that uh, for any of the listeners in Queensland who want to sign an electronic petition calling on an inquiry to start up to look at uh, voluntary assisted dying. So... A bit like we've just had, I suppose, with the abortion question that went to the Law Reform Commission, I think, mm-hmm. Robin, and now seems like that's probably going to go ahead as, as, a, as a bill to legalise abortion in Queensland. Well, that's, that's not guaranteed. I mean, we might have a few uh, Labor Party MPs who vote against it. I mean, uh, nothing nothing is... Is uh, is set in stone at the moment. Yep, yep, that's true. So we'll see what happens with that one. Um, yeah. you, uh, you were at a meeting with uh, is it is it Fiona Patton? Fiona Patton. Um, was at the grilled restaurant in Brisbane, and you met a few of of my comrades, and, um, <laughs> and and a discussion I think kicked off about the Bill of Rights, and you disagree with our position on on a Bill of Rights. So um, you want to con- convince me otherwise, Robin, because, I mean, I, I really I don't have a dog in the fight. If you can give me a good reason why I should change my mind, I'm, I'm more than happy to. It's not that I disagree with you. It's just that I've had a very different experience of living without a Bill of Rights and living with a Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, I'm from South Africa. I grew up under apartheid, and that government wrote all the laws unhindered by any Bill of Rights. And uh, as you you were saying in your argument that uh, you would prefer politicians to be in control of what what happens in terms of legislation, and that's exactly what happened in apartheid. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the politicians wrote the bills unhindered, and uh, the end of apartheid happened not because of the courts, but because of sanctions and uh, a whole lot of economic and military reasons. And we got a new government who started off by introducing a Bill of Rights that was agreed to by everyone in South Africa, and it was perhaps the most progressive Bill of Rights ever. Uh, For example, sexuality uh, was included, and we were the first country in the world to have that included in their Bill of Rights. I, I could sense the difference between what what it was like. I, that's my lived experience. I've actually experienced what it's like to live under a Bill of Rights, and it was incredibly positive. Yep. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the issue around marriage equality was sorted immediately 10 years ago because the government was taken to court, and, of course, they lost the case, and uh, they had to rewrite the laws to allow for same-sex marriage. Yeah, um, so that was really the, the the court forcing the government to to change the law because of precisely. the Bill of Rights. Yeah, and 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 you yes. sent me a link, I think, with a similar story about HIV and and treatment. Well, on that's it. well, that's even a bigger story because 
The, at that time, we, the president of South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, didn't believe that uh, HIV caused AIDS. Um, and his uh, health minister at the time, her name was Bantu Shabalala Msamang, she believed that garlic and olive oil and lemon juice would, would cure AIDS. Mm. Um, so, yeah, well, the sad thing is it wasn't really a laughing matter because millions of people were dying. Absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, it, it was horrific. I mean, every day I heard of someone dying, someone uh, who was known to people that I knew. It was, it was just an, the most awful situation. Anyway, the, the treatment action campaign took the government to court, the constitutional court, and they forced the government to, to issue antiretrovirals mm. uh, to, pregnant, to pregnant women and to people with HIV. And it saved, as you saw in that article, it saved millions of lives. So my lived experience of a Bill of Rights is that it saved millions of lives in the country that I lived. And I cannot speak highly enough of them. Yeah, your your lived experience though also includes Australia, and, and that's we, true. And we don't have a Bill of Rights. Well, and, you don't indeed. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not bad. It, it's not bad, but uh, <laughs> don't the alarm bells start ringing when Bob Carr suddenly agrees with Tony Abbott? Uh, <laughs> You're and, talking about the article that I sent. Uh, yeah. I do. I, yeah. I'm talking about the. Their whole argument against a Bill of Rights smells to me like identity politics. And, uh, you know, we don't see women's groups rushing to to dish the Bill of Rights. We don't see disability groups uh, or Indigenous groups all rushing to come down on a Bill of Rights and say, say they disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to look very carefully at what's going on here um, and ask yourself, is this identity politics? Well, well, I'm certainly not guilty of identity politics. And, well, and you, you, you're probably white. You're probably a male. Yeah. You're probably heterosexual. <laughs> the same, the same as Bob Carr and Tony Abbott. So maybe there's, so, so you, maybe there's something going on there. So it's only people who, who have an identity of a minority that would want a Bill of Rights. Is that, is, uh, who would be inclined to want one? Because, is, is that what you're sort of saying? Because as a white, well, as, as a white cisgender male, you know, I'm yes. I'm not under pressure in that sense. So I, 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 I don't need nothing. a bill of rights. Is that, is that uh, the sort uh, that's of? That's what I'm. I'm suggesting that might be the case. Y- yeah. Except, um, he, here's my argument against a bill of rights, and yes, it it can actually work against minority groups. So. What you've got with a Bill of Rights is they're necessarily drafted in very broad, vague terms. So you have a right of freedom of speech, a right to privacy, a right to uh, religious freedom, um, all all these rights, a right to property. They necessarily, in a Bill of Rights, have to be broadly drafted because they're not meant to be dealing with specifics. They're just general ideas. And they will conflict. And the problem you have with the Bill of Rights is that you're transferring power from the Parliament to the judiciary. And you might get unlucky and have a conservative judiciary. 
So in the South African experience, you were, you were lucky that you had a liberal judiciary that saved you from a conservative uh, parliament. But you could look around the world, you know, e.g. the United States, and they're facing a situation now where they've got a conservative judiciary who will be using Bill of Rights um, style powers to interpret the law which will actually damage the rights of minority groups. So there's been a new Supreme Court judge, Kavanaugh, and he's dead set conservative, of course, and they're talking about Roe v Wade being under pressure, so it will be even more difficult for people to get abortions. And the, the key one that you'll see first, Robin, over there is marriage equality is going to go. There's, there'll be a case come to that Supreme Court and it will be no longer possible for same-sex marriage in the United States. So, you know, it can work both ways. So if, if I was a gay man in the United States, I would not want a Bill of Rights because of the, what the Supreme Court is about to do. So here's the thing. If, so it can either, the combinations can be you can have either a, you know, a conservative judiciary or, or a liberal one. And if they're liberal and they agree with you, well, that's great. But if they're conservative and you don't agree with them, because of the judiciary, they're untouchable. If, if it's a parliament, you can actually, you can do something. You can actually have an election and, and, and have a chance of voting them out. But the citizens of the United States of America have got no chance of voting out that Supreme Court. They're stuck with them for 20 years and there's nothing they can do about it. So, you know, you can either have a good or a bad judiciary interpreting the rights, but if you get a bad one and you're stuck with them for 20 years, there's nothing you can do. And so does that sway you at all? Not really. It just sounds like they've got a bad Bill of Rights. Well, no, but all Bill of Rights necessarily have to be, be broadly drafted and, yes. and necessarily have conflict. So in that article I sent, um, well, let me just try and think here. You know, for example... It could claim the right to free speech. Everyone says, well, that's great. Well, then, you know, Queensland wants to pass a law banning people in exclusion zones around an abortion clinic. And somebody can then say, but hang on a minute, that's a breach of my free speech under the Bill of Rights. And, and that law can be struck down, as simple as that. And right at this very moment... Um, the religious right are actually trying to find a common law uh, sort of equivalent to that and, and strike down abortion clinic um, exclusion zones. So something as simple as a right to free speech could quite conceivably um, strike down legislation um, in enacting exclusion zones. You, you can't draft a Bill of Rights that says, oh, you know, we give the right to free speech but with the exception of uh, abortion clinic exclusion zones... Uh, with the exception of this and with the exception of that. The whole point of them is that you have these broad terms and you leave it up to judges to work it out. And, and a nasty activist conservative judge will bend over backwards to um, read it the way that matches his or her ideology. 
Yeah, I think you've hit the nail right on the head there, Trevor. If you had Neil Gorsuch sitting on your um, Supreme Court or your High Court down here, I'd be very concerned about what a Bill of Rights would do to that would do to the law. Mm. And, and you know, these judges are just appointed by the Prime Minister, you know, by Cabinet or the Attorney, the Governor General by recommendation of, of the. So we don't even have to go through a Senate approval process. Mm. So, um, so they can pop anybody in there. And at the moment, they don't really care that much because High Court judges don't decide these sorts of things. Um, So it hasn't been politicised. But if you create a Bill of Rights, all of a sudden, it's going to be very politicised. Still haven't swayed you at all. (laughs) Even something like like freedom of speech is a great one because something like net neutrality. So you know this idea that uh, internet providers cannot... Um, crank up the speed or wind down the speed of certain websites. Like, everybody's website has the same access speed, theoretically. And it was called net neutrality. And in the United States, they've tried to legislate to enforce that. And the latest Supreme Court judge has said, oh, well, under freedom of speech, that that, that sort of thing is, is a is in contravention of freedom of speech. So that's going to allow companies to to crank up or dial down access to websites. So the big, powerful Rupert Murdoch-controlled websites will have fast access and, and you know, the it Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast yeah. website is going to be as slow as, you know, a snail. <laughs> a week, yeah. And these are you wouldn't think about them but these are the sorts of things that get caught when you have broad brush sort of powers and um yeah so i still haven't convinced you by the sounds of it uh well i think with a bill of rights you need to carefully look at how those judges are elected and they can't just be appointed by say a president they have to go through a selection process so there's you know it's it's a little bit more complicated than just trying to slap a Bill of Rights onto the existing Australian uh, legal system. I think it has to be, it has to be reformed. But, well, the people in power are going to select the judges or the, the electorate is going to select the judges. We don't really want to be in the business of people voting for judges. Well, in the States, they vote for judges. And look what they get. <laughs> look, look, you know, when you, these local... Local elections, look what they get. In in certain places, they also vote in their chief of police and things like that, don't they? Yes. Well, I'm not suggesting that that's a solution, but, you know, we've got to look at at the the entirety of the whole system, not just, uh, you can't just look at the Bill of Rights in itself. You have to look at the other issues as well. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's a summary of my position, that with a Bill of Rights, you get stuck in some long-term problems that can't be fixed, whereas at least with the legis... You know, with Parliament making decisions, in theory, you've always got an election every four years where you can potentially fix things. So... so, Well, a a lot of your arguments are hypothetical and theory, so... uh, No, but these are actual things. No, no. I wouldn't it, worry too much about it. it no, all of the arguments I've given you are dead set going to happen. It, it, Kavanaugh is going to overturn marriage equality in America. Roe yeah, versus Wade is going to be watered that's, down. That's because the Bill of Rights doesn't include sexuality. 
in in Canada, they've got um, tobacco companies can advertise because they can't be stopped because the Bill of Rights says they've got a freedom of speech. This is actually yeah. happening. So, you know, th- these are genuine things that are actually happening. And uh, well, the dangers are there. Well, I'm not suggesting the dangers are not there. Just, I'm just saying mm. that uh, my lived experience of a Bill of Rights has been incredible. And it's saved millions of lives. And I think it's worth taking that risk. Yeah. See, the other thing is, if, if we look at, again, America with the Bill of Rights... It, do their citizens actually enjoy more rights than we do here in Australia? There's all sorts of countries with bills of rights that are terrible countries in terms of human rights. China. So, um, yeah, well, you've also got to look at the rule of law and whether those governments follow the rule of law. Yes. They can have a fantastic bill of rights, but if they don't follow the rule of law, those rights are not worth the paper they're written on. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think your starting point is that your country should follow the rule of law. Yeah. See, I would say, name me one rule that we couldn't just write an act of parliament for that that we have to have as a Bill of Rights. Like, what can't we fix by just writing some sort of act of parliament? Well, I think, as I said, the marriage Mm. equality issue was solved in South Africa 10 years ago. Mm. And uh, we left it to parliamentarians in Australia, and they couldn't fix it. We had to give the public uh, a vote, not a vote, a a, ple- a ple- postal plebiscite before the, the parliamentarians decided they wanted to act. And, you know, I, I disagreed with that plebiscite. However, now that it's been done, I don't think Parliament's ever going to revisit the issue again. Mm. You know, it's been, it's been voted on, it's been overwhelmingly supported, and it's been voted, it's been voted on in the Parliament. So I don't think it's going to be ever revi- be revisited again. However, the, the uh, uh, example Trevor just gave us of... Kavanaugh pulling apart marriage equality in the US, I think that's a real possibility. Mm. I'm not convinced it'll be thrown out, as Trevor is, but I think it is a real possibility. Mm. Anyway, we've, we've laid our arguments out on the table and people can and weigh in and or make their decision and see. So yeah. Leave us a message via SpeakPipe, people. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, that's right. So on the website, dear listener, there is a link where you can click on SpeakPipe and leave us a voice message and give us your two cents worth and We'll read it out or we'll play it or you can leave a comment. So, so Robin, we've got a few other uh, normal topics that we'll just run through. Um, so one of them is that Australia's charity regulator has threatened Catholic Education Melbourne Chief Stephen Elder with jail for campaigning against the government's school funding policy. So, dear listener, essentially... Um, if you want tax-free status as a charity, you can advocate on issues, but you can't advocate for parties. And if you do that, you run the risk of losing your tax-free status. And so the charities regulator has, has come down heavy and said, we're seriously investigating you guys. Hand over all these documents. If you don't, you're facing 12 months jail. And, of course, uh, the Catholics are not happy about that. But... It's just a fair enough, you know, investigation by a regulator doing their job. But, unforgivably, Bill Shorten has come out (laughs) because, of course, dear listener, the Catholics on this occasion were, it seems, in favour or or, or advocating in favour of the Labor Party because the Labor Party had gone soft and it offered them a good deal in terms of 
funding of Catholic schools. So the actual campaigning they were doing was favourable for the Labor Party. And Bill Shorten has come out and blasted the investigation as un-Australian. Robin, what's your position on school funding and, and the Labor Party on this one? Well, I read a wonderful Facebook quote uh, uh, saying that uh, Tony Abbott must be suffering massive cognitive dissonance at the moment because as a Catholic, uh, he would be obviously very disappointed if they had to give up their charity status, but uh, he, he he wants to probably see them punished for supporting the Labour Party. So he must be having a hard time trying to work out which position he's holding. Good point. Uh, He'd be torn. Uh, but... Uh, Another char- uh, charity, uh, Catch the Fire Ministries, was uh, had its charity status removed because of this exact issue. Yes. So I wouldn't be surprised if this ended up uh, with, you know, with people in tears because uh, the law was very clear that ch- the charities can't, uh, um, can't can't advocate for political parties, and this is exactly what the Catholic parties, uh, Catholic Church, has done in this in this case. So I'd be very interested to see what happens. Have you got a... What's the Reason Party position on uh, government funding of religious private schools? Uh, I'm not sure, actually, but I would suspect that uh, we'd be against uh, public uh, uh, government funding of of, uh, uh, religious schools. Right. Right. you know, they're exempt from the Discrimination Act. So if, if they want to choose to go down that path, I don't see how they can turn around and ask for money from, from us while, while wanting to do that. Yeah. Hear, hear. Mm. Mm. All right. Um, 12th man, anything? No, you're good? Not really. I, mm. I would just add that uh, anyone who rolls out this lame term un-Australian just it appears to me it doesn't have any argument. It's it's pretty sad when a, a body charged with investigating these sorts of matters duly undertakes an investigation, and then gets told, "No, you don't. That's stop right there." Like that's that's what they're supposed to be doing, for yeah. goodness' sake. And Bill Shorten, as a potentially the next Prime Minister of Australia, uh, isn't he overstepping the mark, uh, telling a, a statutory body what they should or shouldn't be doing? What thoughts are eh? It's none of his business. This is from the article. The ACNC, which is the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, is an independent agency and the matters and organisations it chooses to investigate are not directed or controlled by government. And that is bang on the money. Mm-hmm. It's not the government telling the ACNC to go and investigate. The ACNC has gone and decided to investigate themselves. Mm-hmm. So a little heat applied to the Catholics there, and they're not happy about it. Um, oh, you know, it's ridiculous. They've got away with they've got away with blue murder for too bloody long. It's about bloody time that they had a hell of a lot of heat applied to them. Well, more heat was applied, of course, by various state governments looking at legislation to break the seal of the confessional. And what we've got here is the National Council of Priests of Australia, with seventeen hundred members, rejects these new laws which would require priests to break the seal of the confession in cases relating to child abuse. The NCPA chairman, Father Jim Clark, a canon lawyer and parish priest of St Mary of the Angels, said, um, members should stand firmly behind practice and tradition of the church. 
The sacramental seal is inviolable. No priest can break that sacred trust, he said. When priests sit and hear the confessions of parishioners, they are sitting as the Lord through the ministry of the church. And another guy who represents another 600 priests said, priests cannot and will not follow such a law. This just guys, well, they I just lay out the law. They just lay out the law. I hope they get arrested. Yep. You know, because they deserve to be thrown in the slammer for that sort of nonsense. Robin, we're we're having we're attacking the Catholics here. You are you one yourself or me? Yes. No, no, I'm a a, a strict atheist. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you were. <laughs> what, what's your position on angels? <laughs> how, many, Angel. how many angels can fit on the, on the head of a needle? <laughs> But I, I, well, we know that the, um, the reason is obviously in favour of priests being forced to divulge sex abuse that they've heard in the confessional. So you're on well, board with that one? Uh, you know, whatever I say, by the way, on this talk, it's not, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it on behalf of reason. I'm, mm-hmm. this, these are my personal opinions. Yep. Um, but uh, uh, I think any, you know, anything that's... You, you need to check with the with the, the higher authorities regarding uh, whether it's reason reason policy or not. Okay. But we can say, we can safely assume that a lot of the stuff is. Okay. Uh, but what's what is what is interesting is you, you talked about that gentleman being part of the. Did you say he was a canon lawyer? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, immediately that rings alarm bells. That you know, we we having canon law uh, uh, becoming. Uh, you know, superseding Australian law. And, you know, in the past we've had people carrying on about uh, Sharia law uh, and the, the threat of that, you know, uh, overtaking Australian law, and yet they're quite happy to have canon law um, uh, do the, do exactly what they don't want Sharia law to do. So, uh, uh, you know, that's my point, is that, uh, you know, we, 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 can't, we can't have canon law um, taking first place in precedence of Australian law. Well, good point, Robin. There's a lot of similarities between the way the Catholics just take the law unto themselves or just ignore the law and want to have their own uh, and Sharia law. There is. But here's the thing. So we've just had this example of them um, just flouting the law in relation to all the potential laws in relation to the seal of the confessional, saying they're just not going to obey them. And we've got another group who of being accused of uh, mischief in terms of um, advocating for political parties when they shouldn't because of the the rules regarding uh, tax status for charities. So they just flout our, our laws willy-nilly, yet they've got the, the temerity. Um, I've got an article here. Catholic leaders have called for a social policy expert to be appointed to a panel advising the Fair Work Commission to better address poverty and disadvantage in the community. So the Fair Work Commission has different people on there to help them make decisions. And the, the goddamn Catholics flout their noses at, at just flout all of our laws, but then say, oh, there's a, there's a body over here for the Fair Work Commission. Well, we deserve a seat at the table. Uh, our agencies see firsthand the effects of economic policies that fail to provide adequate support to those within and outside the workforce. It's critical that those experiences, those learnings, are part of the conversation when decisions are made that have the potential to lift up or keep down some of society's most vulnerable people. So 
Yeah, we don't care about the law about charities. Yeah, we don't care about the law about the confessional. Oh, there's a body here talking about fair work. Yeah, we deserve a seat on that. You're not a good citizen. You don't deserve a seat on any of these bodies. I like what you said several months ago. You, I forget what it was, but it was it might have been an article that you had uh, reproduced that said all you have to do is look at them and say Royal Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, I honestly okay. think that we should be reminding them, rubbing their nose in it at every opportunity that we can. You know? mm-hmm. um, I'm just going to skip ahead to a few articles because I know, Robin, you are interested in... Um, we had... Let me just see here... Um, yeah, this is the one. We we spoke last week, gentlemen, about Scarlett Johansson being admonished for daring to play the part of a transgender person in a movie. And it's come out that she's actually quit the role. She's not going to take it on. So she's felt the heat and has decided she's not going to do it. Robin, you, you, you were keen to comment on, on this one? Well, I just wanted to ask you a question. Uh, what happens if she'd been asked to play a part of a black person? Well, if she could pull off the role of a black person and she can act better than anybody else, the role of a black person, I don't see how she could because she doesn't have the characteristic look of a black person. So There's something called makeup. So... so it, I wouldn't have thought she could pull it off. But if she could go to an audition and in the audition she could knock it out the ballpark in the role, why not? Our very own Kate Blanchett uh, played the part of Bob Dylan, didn't she, in a film a few years back? So, so Robin, you, you disagree? Ob- well, not obviously, but I'm getting the sense that you disagree. I, I just, uh, you know, I I think uh, blackface has gone out of fashion uh, I think you'd, you'd you'd have a big outcry if that happened. So yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised that this has happened. Yeah, but the problem that I have is that, you know, they're, they're talking about transgender actors. Actors are such a small percentage of the population. Transgender is an even smaller percentage of the population, which means you'd have a very, very, very small number of actors that would be transgender. So I don't see that the producers of the film would have a particularly deep pool of talent to choose from. And you're going to end up subjecting a movie about transgender issues to a second or third-rate actor. And that is the problem that I have. I remember a few years ago when, uh, what was it called? Brokeback Mountain came out. And there was arguments that was put up on Facebook and blah, 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 blah about um, one of them. Heath, not Heath Ledger, what's the other guy's name? Yeah, when he said, he said that they asked him about kissing and he says, oh, it was a little bit strange, blah, 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 blah. And there was this um, gay guy who said, well, there's plenty of gay actors out there, why didn't they find a gay actor? I don't think you want to pigeonhole anyone because you're then going to force gay actors to only play gay roles. And I think that the same thing could be done here, that you're going to have transgender actors being told they can only play transgender roles, which I don't think there'd be much demand for. No, I don't think we want that. But, but surely acting is about pretending to Absolutely. be something that you're not. It's exactly. not as if, if we go along to see movies expecting only to see people who you know fit the description of the role playing that role. That's just... Quite absurd. And, and I would say, Robin, 
So what if people were outraged? I mean, acting is about pretending to be something you're not, you know? I mean, blackface or, or whatever. I mean, people are made up to, to all kinds of roles, regardless of what their actual physi- physiology is. Well, I tend to agree with Robin there on the blackface thing. I don't think you want to go do that. Well, why not? Because it's wrong. <laughs> but why is it wrong? That's why I asked the question. Why is it wrong? Why, I mean, what's wrong with people painting their faces whatever colour, whether it's black face, red face, yellow face or green face? People do it all the time. What about that film that... Um, well, a, a Westerner could paint a white face, as in the Japanese um, exactly. sort of uh, exactly. style of theatre. Is, is, is that OK? Or is, it, or is that... Is this all cultural appropriation, um, Robin? Well, I, I, I asked that question because I think, uh, you know, the, it opens up the debate a little bit more. So I'm very interested to hear that there's different opinions so, so coming you, out at the moment. So, okay, well, let's just... So your feeling would be... We'll, we'll get to the, to the blackface one in a moment, but just on the transgender issue, you, you think that Scarlett Johansson should not take a transgender role and leave it open to transgender people? Uh, you know, I haven't really made up my mind on that. Mm. Uh, uh, trans, uh, actors have played... Uh, cis actors have played transgender actors for a long time mm. and transgender act, actors have played the transgender roles. So, um, uh, you know, perhaps it is a case of merit and uh, uh, but only after... That, you know, they've exhausted the the pool, as you said. So if there wasn't a, a, a good enough transgender... So, so you, you're thinking they should look first at transgender actors? I would, then, have, I would have thought so, yes. Well, I have to disagree with you on that one. Mm. Yeah, Plenty of um, gay actors have played straight roles. and oh, <laughs> Much more than you think. Oh, I'm sure they have. Absolutely, they have. And that, that, that was the objection that Even in Hollywood. I mean, before it was um, considered respectable to be openly gay, plenty of gay actors played straight roles. Mm. Yes, all the time. Mm. Exactly. So why shouldn't straight actors play gay roles uh, or whatever? Mm. I, I don't well, see any problem with it myself. I mean, acting is about pretending to be something you're not. Yeah, I think you're right there. It's just the... Blackface is a something that's a little. It's probably been uh, portrayed as being something that's really offensive because of the uh, what were they called the you know when they used to paint themselves the minstrels up. minstrels yeah. yes yeah. the black and white minstrels that sort of thing I think that is probably taking it just one step too far mm. right eh? another one that I think Robin you we talked about in the past that you were interested in talking about was um, the Twelfth Man and I had a debate about a guy who was caught with with um, pornographic material of underage children and where he had drawn it himself and we were arguing the merits of whether that was right or wrong and um, dear listener, look in the back catalogue of episodes, it was only one or two or three ago that we were talking about it, I've lost track but anyway... Since then, um, some of our listeners sent us some uh, links and discussions, and one of them looks at um, sex toys. So I've got a link here to an article um, 
Scandinavian experts are urging the use of childlike sex dolls in a bid to stop pedophiles from abusing real-life children. So there's a Sexpo Foundation in Finland and they're wanting these dummies to be made available to pedophiles uh, following a reported boom in imports in neighbouring Norway. So Norway uh, has revealed they're getting uh, increasingly seeing these coming in. Um, more than 20 have been impounded by customs officials in the past six months. Um, so in a letter by Sexpo Executive uh, Director Tom Palanen, he says... Both sex-based services and international studies have shown that the risk of a sexual offence against a child can be reduced by providing a pedophile with a channel for their desires, and sex dolls are one such channel. So I just going back to the discussion about um, the illustrated materials, I was worried that that would in somehow lead to greater abuse of children. But if we're talking about the argument that these things can be an outlet and actually lead to less abuse of children, like a child sex doll can potentially... Well, thoughts, gentlemen? Robin, you kick off seeing you're our, our guest on this occasion. Well, when I arrived in this country 11 years ago, there was a, a guy in Sydney who had a cartoon uh, of... Lisa Simpson and Bart Simpson having sex. And uh, he was caught with this, and he appeared before the judge, and the judge was going to lock him up for having this cartoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I thought that was completely astounding that uh, someone could go to jail for that. Uh, and it suddenly made me realize that uh, I'd seen an episode of, of um, South Park with illustrations of children having sex on, on the, in the cartoon. Uh, so I reported to this to the Broadcasting uh, Complaints um, Commission and uh, they investigated it uh, and they decided not to do anything about it. Uh, obviously, it would be highly embarrassing for Australia to ban South Park, uh, probably the only country in the world to do that. Um, so... It just struck me that the you know the big end of town can get away with it. Uh, obviously, I support I supported them, but uh, I was just trying to make a point that the big end of town can get away with it, and yet someone the man in the street could could find himself in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just struck me as very dangerous, and it's 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 hard to imagine that you can stand somewhere with a pen and do a drawing and be locked up for it. It's just incredibly uh, bizarre. Mm. Got any thoughts on the sex dolls? Like if people want to import... Sex dolls, uh, uh, Well, in particular, uh, you know, juvenile sex dolls, like clearly underaged pretend dolls. I haven't haven't obviously thought about this. Um, uh, It sounds like a complicated issue. Mm. Uh, You know, something really that should psychologists should be talking about, not uh, uh, not someone with my kind of uh, background. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Robin. I, I, when I first read the article, I thought to myself, this guy's on smoking wacky tobacco, but... Um, what do you got against wacky tobacco? 
<laughs> Nothing against wacky tobacco. I'm just saying that he's he's been smoking it to make this comment. But he must have made the, he must have made that comment based on some sort of science or something like that to actually come out there and say that it's an outlet and for these desires. I agree it probably is an outlet for these desires. My fear is that at some stage the guy might end up getting sick of the doll and think to himself he's going to go look for something that's warm-blooded. But shouldn't we, wouldn't, shouldn't we rely on um, evidence and, you know, the research of experts? Absolutely. And this, is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. Our personal distaste. Yeah, and this is what I'm saying is you, you, you have to rely on the, the advice of experts before you allow that type of thing out there. Yeah, I think now one would have thought that for the sexpo guy to make that comment that he must have he must have it backed up by research somewhere or other. But you know, well, he could also be fudging the figures because he's you know he's, that's his industry and he wants to boost it. So you, you never know. Yeah. yeah. So I think it is one of those ones where at the end of the day, what's the expert consensus? Is this going to lead to more child abuse or less child abuse? And whichever way it falls is where you end up agreeing with, I think. So if there was evidence that it would lead to less, maybe not zero, but mm. less, mm. would you agree with it? Yeah, I think you'd have to, wouldn't you? Isn't that why we, um, we, you know, we rely on evidence for a whole mm. range of things? Mm. Yeah, and that's, that's where I'd sit in. I'd fit into that category too. If the evidence was, if the research suggested that it led to less, less child abuse, then I'd be supportive of it. Mm. And you could drop some of the dolls off down the local Catholic church too. Mm. well robin were there any other major ones that you wanted to talk about otherwise um we we might let you go and um well thank you so much for having me and uh i I do appreciate it and um yeah yeah, uh, um, all the best and uh, i enjoy listening to this podcast so uh, (laughs) thank you very much right okay robin well, we've got links to um, uh, to that petition and to the Reason site, and I think at some stage Fiona might come on the podcast as well and mm. and tell us Wonderful. what's going on there. So we've obviously got a lot in common with the aims and objectives of... of well, am I, it's not called the Reason Party. Is it just Reason? Is that right? Like I think it's Reason Australia. Yeah. I think that's the official name. Okay, yeah, yeah. so... Good on you, Robin. Well, we'll be in touch over time, and uh, thanks for coming on and telling us what you're up to. Thanks very much, Robin. Uh, Bye now. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Dear listener, time to talk about America. I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) I love talking about America because I just see it as a looking glass into our future if we're not careful, and we've just got to keep an eye on what they're doing, and are we doing the same sorts of things? So. I've got a bit of intro music, I feel, that whenever we start to talk about America, here it is for you. To me, dear master, bring it up a little bit. Will you please tell me what is wrong with America? What's wrong in America this week? Well, Donald Trump is what's wrong. And 
He was in Helsinki, uh, dear listener, and met with Putin and basically just rolled over. <laughs> he did roll over. It was absolutely ridiculous. Just, just give the background, Scott, for people Sorry. listening in six months' time, but essentially asked, you know, do you believe Russia was involved in meddling in the US election? And he said, well, I've spoken to Vladimir and he's assured me that he had nothing to do with it. And as an ex-KGB spy, I believe him 100%. So no, I don't see any reason to think that he would have been involved. That's essentially what happened. That's essentially what happened. But I found it absolutely incredible that, you know... I found it absolutely incredible that he said that because his own intelligence chiefs, his own intelligence apparatus is saying to him the Russians were involved. Now, one would have thought that as the head of the United States government that he would be obliged to follow the advice that was coming from government agencies in the United States. But apparently not. Apparently he just has to listen to a Russian strongman and he changes his mind. I don't it's I didn't believe those stories about Russians having tapes of Soviet of Russian girls urinating on the bed and that sort of really? stuff. Really? I you didn't believe, believe it. it. No, I didn't believe that, but I'm beginning Do you believe it now. I'm beginning to believe it now because it's the only explanation for you, Trump you, rolling over the way he is. Do you know why you can believe it? That that Putin's got dirt on him because Putin denied having dirt on him. Yeah. <laughs> He specifically denied and said, oh, we don't keep track of businessmen. You know, there's nothing there. Don't worry about it. Exactly. The and fact you know, that I, he actually I, raised it. And look, I have, I have said it and I still stand by that I think that you're better off having the Russians in the G8 than out of it. I do believe that you should talk to them. But there's ways that you can talk to them and still maintain your own national dignity, which Trump clearly doesn't know how to do. Mm. This is interesting, this one, because Fox News actually had commentators saying it was terrible. Mm. That hasn't happened before. I've got one explanation. Mm. Tribalism. So US politics is all around tribalism. People associate with their tribe, which is the Republicans, and they will just agree to anything provided it's part of the tribe. But for Americans... They're all part, and they've been indoctrinated into it, of a much larger tribe, and that is American. And when you've got America versus Russia, people identify with their tribe of, I'm an American, and he has just trashed us, and they feel that as a tribe member of America. So that's, I reckon, one of the reasons why this one's a bit different to other ones, and it's because... Normally he can rely on tribalism to get him out of trouble, but in this case he offended a much bigger tribe that his members were also part of. There you go. Mm, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, something I read uh, the other day was, was about the fact that Trump seems to be more comfortable with um, despots and dictators than he does with uh, liberal Democrats. And Putin clearly is one. I mean, he's very chummy with Putin now. He was very chummy with Kim Jong-un, one of the most despicable despots currently alive. I mean, that just seems to be the sort of people that Trump seems to relate to 
more than he relates to people with you know values that we would share. Well, you you, you can you, I think there's a hell of a lot to that, Paul, because you got that situation that he was you know he trashed <coughs> he trashed um, Theresa May. Yes. He thumped her down. Not to mention NATO. He exactly. Gave them, gave gave them, them a hiding, hiding and then too. Went off and and sat down with sat down with the biggest threat to NATO and yeah. said, "Yeah, it was great." You know, as Trevor said, an ex KGB officer who yeah. who was trained how to lie. Exactly. It's like police hauling in a, a suspect for a murder and saying, "You did it, didn't you?" And and the murder suspect says, "Honestly, I didn't do it." Mm. And they go, "Oh, okay. Off you go then." I just hope I live long enough for when it all comes out as to what they actually had on yeah, him. What the, <laughs> I, get to, I get to read and hear about it. They've got heaps for sure. Yeah. Big tycoon comes to Russia. Let's set him up with some hookers and, yeah. and, and get him to do some outrageous stuff and it could come in very handy for us down the track. Yeah, at the very like, least. Yeah. There, there may be some evidence that he, he, he was colluding with the people who sabotaged Hillary Clinton, or maybe somebody on his behalf. Mm. Mm. We'll see how all that pans out. Um, got a comment from listener Greg, um, who wrote in and said, as to joining the Labor Party, I couldn't agree more. The same-sex marriage debate would have been so much cleaner if more secular people were members of LNP and Labor. The Liberals' website claims 80,000 members. Sounds about right. Probably, yeah. The 2016 census counted just under um, 46,800 same-sex couples, which, double that out, comes to a round figure of 90,000 same-sex people living together. So that's 90,000 same-sex people living together. There's only 80,000 Liberal members. They've all just gone and joined the Liberal Party. What could they have achieved? We, 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 wouldn't have had, we wouldn't have had a postal plebiscite for starters, yeah. I mean, Tony Abbott would be out on his ass, that sort of thing. Yeah. Good point, listener Greg. Yeah. Finishes off, I do the math and think we pay a big price for the average Australian's complacency. Mm. Absolutely. We, we, yeah, we, we do. And that is, that is, he's dead on the money. We do, pay for, we do pay a very big price for our average complacency. Mm. So how many hard secularists can we persuade to join the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, do you think? I don't know, but I'm going to find out at some stage. That's that's plan A, I reckon. I mean, I... you join. Have, 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 have we written off the Liberal Party? Have we? <laughs> well, I would say, um, you know, if you are more inclined economically with the Liberals, then sure, join up them. But if. You know they're already overtaken by the Christians, but you know, you know, if you really feel strongly economically with their neoliberal economic policies, but well, it depends. I mean, like, that too. I mean, why would you? Why would you feel so strongly about the Liberal parties that you would have to go with them, not Labor? What have they got that well, you because would? Because they they don't what? kick their members out of Parliament. They don't kick their members out of the party if they do cross the floor, whereas the Labor Party does. Right. The Labor Party also has, you know, what is it, two-thirds of the members there have got union backgrounds? Something like that? Yeah, but that's what we're trying to change. Exactly. Well, you know, good luck with that because... 
<laughs> the unions are very much wedded to the Labor Party mm. and the Labor Party is very much wedded to mm. the unions. I, I, look, I don't even know how it all works in terms of the branches and their voting power of members and things like that. Or to be somebody tell us about it. Save me some effort of looking it up and Googling it. But. Well, I mean, you can, you know, they do have a, the members of the Labor Party do have a say in the leadership. Do they have a say in the local members? I don't know. Pre-selection. I couldn't tell you That's about that. That's the key one yeah. that I need um, to find out. Well, we're forgetting someone, aren't we? Why maybe we should infiltrate the Greens and, you know, make them a bit more sort of genuinely secular. Not while there's breath in my lungs. <laughs> 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 because, be, be, because, 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 uh, they are—they're a prisoner of identity politics. Yes, but they are a—you uh, know. See, this is the thing, isn't it? Like we've, we really felt that a little bit with Robin just before, with the transgender actor uh, um, issue. It was—he mm. was very sympathetic to that sort of social justice virtue signalling sort of thing that we just have drawn a line straight through. And a lot of the, a lot of the left are, aren't they? So you, you, yeah, yeah, they are. And, and I, so I, I do think that... Um, other, other than that, what's wrong with the Greens? Okay, well, they, their economics is... They, they are very red. You know, right. they, you know they, they have been described as being watermelons. They're green on the outside, red but, in but, the centre. But you, you have agreed with universal basic income I as have being agreed with universal basic income because it will support the capitalist system. Yeah. It, will maintain a, it will maintain having a, a base of a reasonable, reasonably compensated well, well, consumer class. Well, are the Greens any more than that? I don't know about that. Mm. You know, they, they, they want to see everything well. Oh, they don't want to see everything in government hands, but they would be comfortable if, they, if, they, if the banks were nationalised and all that sort of thing. Look, I agree with you. The, the, the current Greens are watermelons, but mm. can't that but, be but, changed? But, but hang on, watermelons, because mm. they've got um, red on the inside, green on the outside. So mm. the red on the inside is the communist. But are they anything more than just balancing up income inequality? Are they anything more than that, seriously? Which we are anyway. Exactly, yes. Good point. Find, yeah. find me a Greens economic policy that you disagree with. Okay, I'll go, I'll go and do There's that. There's a challenge. I'll, I'll come back to you next week with that, yeah. So I just think the problem with the Greens is this whole social justice virtue signalling sort of thing where they would probably agree with the transgender banning of Scarlett Johansson. That's where I just can't... You know, and, can't stomach them. Yeah, and also yes. the sort of pandering to different Aboriginal issues in a way that's very different to what we would approach it. Yeah. They seem to me captive to any hokey, postmodern, you know, pseudo-social theory that's going. Right. Okay. Well, speaking of craziness... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's go back to the religion again. Here's a good one. Over the, over the years... Well, over the years, yes, over the years, it is that... We've spoken about the brides of Christ and um, about these consecrated virgins and they're back in the news, dear listener. Now, I have to tell you, when I find these articles, and this one again is from the Catholic, uh, no, this is from the Guardian, but usually when I find an article, I'll highlight little paragraphs here and there and I'll be quite selective in which ones I, I read out to you and try and just the highlights. This particular article, every paragraph is just, 
gold. <laughs> so you just have to excuse me for reading most of this article. and We'll pause every now and then. But I really couldn't pick and choose amongst these little tidbits of just pure gold. So <laughs> here we go. Christian women who have pledged lifelong virginity as brides of Christ have expressed shock at a Vatican document that suggests literal virginity is not a prerequisite for their consecration. <laughs> the Vatican's new instruction on consecrated virginity, Ecclesia Sponsea Imago, was published earlier this month after requests from bishops who reported an increasing number of women being called to the vocation. There are an estimated 5,000 consecrated virgins in at least 42 countries, with the largest numbers in France, Italy and Argentina. Consecrated virgins, dear listener, are unmarried women who offer their physical virginity as a gift to Christ and devote time to penance, works of mercy and prayer. Unlike nuns, they do not live in enclosed communities or wear special clothing. Most have jobs and they provide for their own needs. So they not their sexual needs, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> they just, so they essentially, they're not nuns, they're just going about normal life but just deciding to be virgins to save their bodies as a gift to Christ. It's bizarre, isn't it? It is. It's bizarre. Mm. So there's a 39-page Vatican document offering detailed guidance on the vocation, <laughs> including advising up to two years' preparation before consecration. Um, uh, it says in relation to consecrated virgins, that they experience the spiritual fertility of an intimate relation with Lord Jesus. What does that <laughs> But the clause that has surprised uh, some says actual virginity is not essential for a woman to become a consecrated virgin. Um, the call to give witness to the church's virginal, spousal and fruitful love for Christ is not reducible to the symbol of physical integrity, it says. It goes on. But what it is is the actual um, association of consecrated virgins, they're not happy because they're saying, what do you mean people can be part of our group and not be a virgin? It's part of the deal. They are spewing... Um, and saying that it's deeply disappointing <laughs> in its denial of integral virginity as the essential and natural foundation of the vocation. It is shocking to hear from Mother Church that physical virginity may no longer be considered an essential prerequisite. This <laughs> wait, wait. The whole concept. Is there any mention of crucifix-shaped dildos? <laughs> <laughs> It really, it really buggers you up, doesn't it? It does. You know, it, the, the whole thing around sex and sexuality that the Christians seem to have this obsession with, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And not only the Christians, obviously, but, yeah, they really are hung up on sex. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, more than hang up on sex, they're hung up on denying yourself sex. It mm. makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. Uh, State of Origin recently finished. Did you guys watch any? <laughs> Not this time, but I did the previous <laughs> one. I think I watched the first one. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I had to 
I had to look you at who won. Wash your hair. Exactly. Like yeah. I had to look at who won before going into the office the next did day. Your, did your family, if I may ask, Trevor, did your mm. family suffer any repercussions of you watching State of Origin? No, no. But good question, 12th man, because what they found is uh, newly released data from the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research which has been done over six years, has revealed a 40% increase in domestic violence um, during State of Origin game days. So they um, looked at the data every Wednesday. The State of Origin series was on, and for the two weeks beginning or prior to it and the two weeks after, and they also had a... um, sort of a control group being Victorians for the same period who don't watch State of Origin. And at the end of the day, uh, in the 12-hour window from 6pm to 6am on State of Origin game night, women and children in New South Wales are almost 40% more likely to become victims of domestic violence. Amazing. Presumably because people drink lots of alcohol and, and for the last... Ten years, the New South Wales have been pretty shitty because they lose most of the time. So. <laughs> Do you know, I have a theory, and it's, it's related to that. I reckon uh, families who watch Cheech and Chong movies, you know old <laughs> Cheech and Chong movies, yeah. are much more inclined to overdose on pizza. <laughs> now Probably you, about you, 40% more inclined. Well, are you disputing the figures? No, I'm not. I, I thought it was quite interesting, actually, but I don't quite know what to... What to say in response, do you? I mean, what's the solution if, if in fact, it's true? And they, well, they see, claim to have pretty solid research evidence. Yeah, you know, the Greens would say ban state of origin. Uh, but we're not <laughs> going to do that. No. There is no solution except um, women and children, you know, go away on state of origin nights and mm. stay with them, with your mother or what something. They call those special rooms that... People build in their house. Safe rooms. Safe, Safe rooms. rooms yeah. Yeah. Safe rooms for the family on State of Origin. Mm. We got a new review um, on iTunes from Andy Dowling. Congrats on three years. I'm a fairly new fan. Thanks to Caitlin Langley. And this has become one of my favourite podcasts. Keep up the good work. And Andy has his own podcast, Andy Social Podcast. And he's a bass player in Lord. Don't worry, we're not a Christian band. Okay. That's good. Gives us a five-star review, gives us a plug, and manages to plug his own podcast at the same time. That's good. So Andy's Andy actually... social, is it? Andy's social podcast, and he actually interviewed Caitlin Langley and had a, another in-depth chat with her, and they referred to our podcast and linked to ours. So good on you, Andy. Thanks for that. And mentioned some, uh, some patrons while we're at it. Starting at the top, thank you, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, uh, Stingers, Platt Videos. I think it used to be Jason. Um, Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, Anonymous, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, James, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn. New patrons this month, uh, Matt, Robert, Dean and Rod, and we also got a donation from Greg. And thank you, of course, always to the two Kens who donate outside of Patreon. Thank you very much, guys. Much appreciated, and it's easy to do. Go on the website. You'll see the patron link, and it helps us to cover some of the expenses that we go through here, namely hosting fees and beer money. And, uh, <laughs> and we've got a lot of cords here as well. So, yeah. 
quick mention, we've often referred to Kenan Malik. Mm. And he's one of our favourite authors. And he's coming to Brisbane in April, I think, next year, 12th Man. And I emailed him and said, Kenan, I've got a podcast. And when you're in Brisbane, if you want to come on the podcast, we can do a really in-depth interview because I've read me your books and most of your articles. And he actually responded and said, yeah, I'd probably be up for that. just depends on time. Um, make contact again closer to the time. So there's oh, something really? to look forward to. Absolutely. Mm, that, that would be good. very good, yeah. Mm. Hope that comes through. That's Ken and Malik. Um, right. Um, uh, let's just see. We had uh, – there's been a decision come through about – in the Supreme Court – one of the Muslim terrorists who's being tried in the Supreme Court, his wife wanted to just sit in the gallery in a niqab mm. and the Supreme Court judge has come out and said, no, can't sit in the gallery. Basically, his reasons were security. He said that if one person would be approved, then there'd be others and if there's multiple spectators wearing niqabs, working out... Who was who, if something happened in court, might not be a simple matter, especially as such dress tends to be very similar. I've previously indicated that whilst all are welcome in my court, spectators must have their faces uncovered, uncovered chiefly for security reasons. So that was that decision. And when I was in Sydney recently, I was walking along and this person was coming the other way. It was an Asian girl had a cap on, like a baseball cap, and a flu mask. You know how Asians often wear a mask over their face, both so that they don't inhale germs and also if they've got an illness and they're coughing, they're not going to spread it. And 12th man, you would be familiar in Japan in the train system, it's extremely common for people to have these face masks on. And here's my point, or here's my conundrum, person with a, with a cap on and one of these masks is not that dissimilar to a niqab in the sense of the loss of facial expression that you get. Like in the past, I've objected to the niqab because you can't ascertain friend or foe or things like that. You can't ascertain the other person's motion, um, emotions or expressions. With the face, with the, with the flu mask, you can't either. It's true. And I started to think, I've got to work out this conundrum because I'm, I'm happy with a face mask, but I'm not happy with a neck out. And now is that just prejudice or not? Well, I just think that you can ask them to remove the cap. Yes. And, and a person be... wearing a flu mask would probably be quite uh, willing to remove the flu mask for purposes of identification if needed, whereas a person wearing a niqab would probably be quite reluctant. Yeah, but we've said, you know, it's not like we're okay with niqabs provided people reveal themselves when requested to. Like, we haven't said that. I I, I would go beyond that. I would say the niqab, because it's often, um, you know, it's worn in all kinds of social interaction outside the family home and certainly with anyone who is not a... Uh, a male immediate family member, um, it it cuts people off from social interaction. But no, so does the flu mask, like in, the, yes, in, a, in a hat. 
it isn't worn all the time by people who wear them. You know what I mean? They wear them specifically. But you don't know that the person where you don't. That's not a key point. That's not a key criteria. You know, I object to somebody walking down the street in a carb, not because I know they did it yesterday and the day before and every day for the last five years. It's because they're wearing it right now. So that's not the reason to make a distinction between the two. Can you justify a distinction? Look, the niqab goes uh, goes along with usually a very uniformly coloured, full body covering outfit, whereas the flu mask doesn't. The flu mask still. Yeah, but I don't have a problem with. Um, I don't have a problem. So with, you're only talking with, about the facial recognition. Yeah, I don't. Aspect. I don't care what sort of sack people are wearing. I do. Because it, it doesn't affect my ability to discern their friend or foe mm. characteristics. Velvet glove, looking perturbed. Yeah, I'm not sure anymore because you've, you've, yeah, because you have raised a very interesting question there. Could you remove that flu mask before you continue? Not wearing a flu mask, but yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think that with the flu mask and that sort of thing, I, I think you're. I think Paul's right. You, you could ask them to remove it, and for the purposes of identification, which I don't have an issue with, but. You are right. It is one of those things that you've got to ask yourself, are you being prejudiced because there's someone in a niqab as opposed to a flu mask? Yeah, I don't know. Dear listener, solve this dilemma for mm. me because uh, I'm motivated <laughs> to find uh, – I'm trying to justify it. I've got motivated reasoning happening here, but I'm, I'm, I can't find a distinction. I think, I think Paul's right. I, I, I think that if you – ask someone in a flu mask to remove the flu mask and cap, they're going to be happy to do so. So I don't have a problem with that. The niqab, though, is something that's very different. And we have seen already, you know, just through these articles of people going into court that refusing to remove them. So I don't have an issue with, I don't have an issue with the flu mask and the cap but just, the just because you reckon different. people will agree to take it off if you ask them to. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you don't know they will. Yeah, you don't know they will, but so, I think so, that you've got a better chance of getting someone to remove a flu mask and a cap and, than you do with someone with a kneecap. And you think that makes a difference? Absolutely it does, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> That's not a distinction. I, I know it's not. Just because you think you I, might be able to convince them to let you see under it to identify them, you're suddenly okay with it. Absolutely, yeah. But there's 15 people on a subway or a bus wearing a mask. Mm. Are you going to go up to all of them and say, can I just... No, you, because I'm not a cop or anything like that, but the cops do could have well, reason to request that they remove well, the Well, the cops could do that with a niqab as well. Yeah, he could do it with a niqab, and I think he'd, get, he'd, think he'd probably get told to get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all probably's and whatever. Like, exactly. These are not, it, it, these are probably not dis- it, 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 You can't... I don't think you're going to get a distinguishing... I don't think you're going to find a distinguishing feature between a flu mask and a niqab. I do think that they are essentially the same article of clothing, but I do agree with Paul that if you ask someone to remove a flu mask, they're going to remove it. Maybe. 
I what if there's that, a religious group that wears flu masks and caps? Well, we, and they, and they we, decide, we, we don't have a we don't have a knowledge of a, of a religious group that it, insists a, on wearing a flu a mask and a cap. Experiment. Okay, but if we did, I think we'd I think we'd insist that they remove them. So we would object to that as much as we object to the, the NICAP. Exactly, because it's got a religious basis for it. But the evidence so far is that the flu mask is to either prevent the person wearing the flu mask from getting sick or, or prevent that person spreading the sickness. So then at the same time, in the bus, you've got people who might be one of this religious group wearing the mask, or they might not be. They might just have the flu or exactly. be worried about the flu. So you don't know whether they're going to... Uh, remove their mask or not. So mm. you've lost that, that, that thought process. Yeah, but if you, you ask, if you ask them to remove it and they don't, then you've got a, then you've got a problem. I, I really got, Dear listener, help me out on this one. Because <laughs> the, the, the solution offered here by yeah. the Velvet Glove and the Twelfth Man is not helping me. We often hear um, from certain Muslim groups how Muhammad... Um, you know, was was a scientist before science was invented. So maybe he knew something about the spread of germs that, you know, was ahead of his time. And the niqab was a sort of um, pre-scientific flu mask. Well, if that's the case, why aren't men required to wear them too? Oh, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe only women can transmit the flu. <laughs> Right, we on this podcast have talked about gun control in, again, America on many occasions. And Sasha Baron Cohen has come, is coming out with a new series, apparently, where he's managed to con his way into interviewing all sorts of Americans about all sorts of issues. And one of those issues is gun control. And, uh, dear listener, he's, he's, he's got this sort of prosthetic sort of face mask thing on so these guys can't recognize him they don't know who he is and he's running this um i was gonna say scam but this uh it's not a scam as much as a uh a deception where he is pretending to be this israeli who uh is um very much pro-guns and he's meeting up with with the gun lobby people in America and having meetings with them. And the things that they reveal are just incredible. So, dear listener, I'm going to play for you the first part of, of what happens. And in the university, what do the liberals say is the reason for this and this solution? Well, they blame it on guns. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy because They people... blame it on the guns? Yes. Sugar. Yes. It's sugar. It is. We start a program in Israel for kindergartens. Okay. We train them from the age 16 down to the age 3. Yeah, well, I, I think it would be a, a good idea. We, we've been pushing something along this line for years, but really haven't gotten any traction with it. We were thinking 7th or 8th grade. You're talking much younger than that. My son was in the very first program. May he rest in peace. Uh, he died doing what I love. Yeah, they haven't quite developed um, what we call conscious, where you, you, you feel guilty about doing something wrong. That's developing, that you're learning right and wrong. If they don't, haven't developed that yet, they could be very effective soldiers. This year, in our state government, they had a bill put in that would have made it illegal for someone four years old to 12 years old to have access to a gun. Uh, we, we, killed, we, we killed the bill. They tried to stop four-year-old 
children from having access to guns? Yes, yes. What is the logic that these people come up with? They just think that children uh, can't handle them. We want three-year-olds who are real experts at what they're doing, not three-year-olds who are reckless. Yeah. And we don't teach two-year-olds because they call it the terrible tools for <laughs> yes, a reason. A reason. Yes. So I would like you to help me do instructional video for three-year-olds. Okay. <laughs> they call it the terrible tools for a reason. That's funny. So he's talking with um, Philip Van Cleve, leader of the Virginia Citizens Defence League. And this is a guy who's commonly interviewed as, as a pro-gun sort of advocate. So uh, they then go on to um, do this advertisement, for, which involves putting guns inside toys and kids learning how to shoot guns by <laughs> playing with toys. So, <laughs> so that's what happens in that part. And then... Uh, in this next clip, he talks to this guy, Larry Pratt, who's the Executive Director Emeritus of Gun Owners of America, and he's responding enthusiastically to his message and says, look, I think we could you know, get you in touch with some people in Congress. And then later on in the clip, uh, he's, he's going to be talking to guys from Congress. And these are the people he's talking to. When you're listening to this, dear listener, uh, Two of them are current congressmen. One's a former Senate majority leader, and one is a former congressman. So um, these are the these are the people that you'll hear on this clip. So I'll I'll play the second part now. There are a few members of Congress that I think would be as receptive to what you're doing as I have been. I'd be very happy to see if we could get them interested to set some time aside. Great. Let's see if we can stop these anti-gun people from getting everyone killed. Yeah, yeah. They've got blood on their hands. Now that I had this Pratt on board, I was welcomed into the halls of Congress, where I sat down with the House representative and outlined my common sense proposal. Oh, the, the you want me to say on television that I support three and four-year-olds with firearms? Is that what you're asking me to do? Uh, yes. You can do Typically, of members the... of Congress don't just hear a story about a program and then indicate whether they support it or not. I support the Kindergartens program. We in America would be wise to implement it, too. It's something that we should think about in America, about putting guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens, good guys, whether they be teachers or whether they actually be uh, talented children or highly trained preschoolers. Maybe having young people trained and understand how to defend themselves in their school might actually make us safer here. A three-year-old cannot defend itself from an assault rifle by throwing a Hello Kitty pencil case at it. Our founding fathers did not put an age limit on the Second Amendment. The intensive three-week kindergarten course introduces specially selected children from 12 to 4 years old to pistols, rifles, semi-automatics, and a rudimentary knowledge of mortars. In less than a month, <laughs> less than a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. Toddlers are pure, uncorrupted by fake news or homosexuality. They don't worry if it's politically correct to shoot a mentally deranged gunman. They'll just do it. <laughs> Jeez, 
Jesus Scott hadn't heard, Christ. Scott hadn't heard the second part of that before. He only heard the first part before. I, I cannot believe that those people are either serving members of the Congress or are former members of the Congress. That they would, and they they would they were doing that quite seriously, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe that that idiot said that you know you got to have people who are age twelve down to four. You know, and he said that you know inside a month you can have people going from being a first grader to a grenadier, grenadier. <laughs> with a rudimentary knowledge of mortars. Yeah. <laughs> Because he was given a script and said, I'll oh, just read this for us. And he just, he just he read did, it all. He did make the point he didn't want to put guns in the hands of any preschoolers, <laughs> only responsible, well-trained That's preschoolers. Right. And, and none of them are in the terrible twos because it's the terrible twos for a reason. Oh, honestly, you have to – there's a link on You've the You've got to watch notes, it, ladies and gentlemen, and you do. You have to watch it because you pick up all the little side looks of – of Cohen and and the little side comments he makes, oh, it's it's he's a, a very clever actor, isn't it? The way mm. he maintains his composure, yes. in that insane environment with those people, yeah, frightening, just frightening. So, twelfth man, you're you've often said the solution to everything is education. Maybe not everything, a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of things, yes. I, I'm a strong believer in the power of good secular education. Yeah. This tribalism is out of control. And these it people is. in these tribes, just facts and figures, are nothing to them. They just have a position for their tribe and they will just justify and rationalise anything. Mm. See, and that's, that's an example. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one, one of the things that really pissed me off, pardon the language, was that um, you had one of these gun nuts in America point to that uh, terrible shooting over in Western Australia. And he said, well, see, Australia's banned guns and there's still, shoot, there's still mass killings. That was one mass killing in 20 years. Mm-hmm. But it was a family. It was a family yeah. killing. Yeah. Yes, I know that, but it was still a mass killing. Mm. One in 20 years as opposed to one every other day in the United States. It mm. makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So there you go, dear listener. Mm. I reckon we're done and dusted. It's only at least an hour, 40 minutes or something. Yeah. <laughs> Meredith, if you're still on the treadmill. <laughs> treadmill yeah, you, you, can, you can throw rocks at us later. I meant to put in a warning at the beginning, Meredith. I thought it was going to be a long one and not to even get on the treadmill or at least have it on a very easy setting. So. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, dear listener, there's homework for you. Uh, the first thing is to provide some thoughts on the NICAB and the flu mask situation. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that one. And, and the other thing is the Bill of Rights too. Yeah, uh, no, I'm not interested in your thoughts on that. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon I've got that one nailed, to tell you the truth. I'd like to know people's thoughts on the state yeah. of origin <laughs> dilemma. Yeah, well, there's no dilemma there. Nothing you can do about it, I don't think. To advise women to um, go to a friend's house and something like that. I don't know. It's a tough one. Well, it's been a hoot once again. It has been, yes. Mm. Thank mm. you, dear listener. We'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Thank you very much. And before we go, I'd just like to congratulate Trevor on becoming a grandfather. Ah, yes. Thank so, you very much. Yes. Yeah, very Beautiful welcome. granddaughter. Absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Alert, looks around and... And just loving life and has just bounced out of the womb, ready to go. Oh, that's Fantastic. Great. Mm. So, yes, everyone's happy. Until next time. Yes. 
Thank you very much for listening. Bye now. See you. Okay, everyone, welcome. This support group is for people who are so woke that they are finding it impossible to have any fun at all. We have somebody new with us this week, so would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Hi, I'm Oscar. Uh, I think, like a lot of you guys, for me, it started with the little things. Signing an online petition, going to a march. Well, I mean, before I knew it, I was... I was writing to The Guardian about LGBT representation in the Harry Potter books. Which is shocking, by the way. All right, Lily. We've all read your blog. Don't worry, Oscar. You've come to the right place. All of the young people in this room are ruining their lives by being overly virtuous. That's actually a microaggression to say young people because it carries subconscious bias towards the elderly. Actually, what you're doing is denying agency to the elderly, which is arguably much worse. This, This is what I'm talking about. You see, it's a slippery slope. One minute you're carrying a reusable water bottle, fine, and the next minute you're arguing that water is racist. Oh, my God, is water racist? No, no, it's just an example. Right, how did you guys get on with the homework that I set you? Guys isn't an especially inclusive term. Not now, Jamie. By homework, do you mean having to watch that old people's sitcom? It's called Friends, Lily, and you were supposed to watch it and enjoy it. Well, I tried, but I found it deeply problematic. Why? Well, there's the homophobia, the transphobia, the fatism and the slut-shaming and could Chandler be any more annoying? You can't go through your 20s worrying about every aspect of everything. You have to pick your battles. And just remember that it doesn't really matter because by the time you hit your 30s, most of you are going to be massively right-wing anyway. Have any of you started to think that maybe poor people don't deserve benefits? No. Well, watch out for that one because that's how it starts. Look, I understand this has all been a bit much for some of you, so let's take five and have a hobnob. I find the word hobnob very fallocentric. Fuck off, Jamie. Yeah. Iron fifth in a rubber glove. Real shit. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, 
you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.